Well, good morning. We're going to start this morning with uh, what's an important time just to, to pray. Uh, just with the insanity of the Hurricane Harvey and what's going on in Texas right now, and a couple of people have already died, just we're not quite sure how it's going to wind up. I wanted to remember that as we learn to love, live, and share Christ in this world, one of the important things is that we, we continue to love those others around us. So we're just going to lift up uh, Texas right now as we open up in prayer, and then we'll get into our, uh, into our labeled series here. So if you'll join with me, let's go ahead and just lift that up. Father in heaven, we, we do, we beseech you, we ask on behalf of those in Texas and all over the, the Gulf Coast area that has been hit by this hurricane, that Father, your mercy and grace might um, just abound with them as you would protect homes and protect people's lives. Uh, we know that many uh, little towns and stuff have already been just completely just overwhelmed and in many cases completely destroyed. And we ask that you would please give them the wherewithal and the give um, the churches around the area the, the opportunities to come and love and rebuild and be um, a light in the midst of the darkness. God, there'll be going to be people wondering why you would, you would allow something like this to happen. I pray that they would find you and not reject you. And I pray that they would see that this world, that something's wrong and that there's a solution and that you have it. And so we just lift all of those who are in suffering right now and just hurting that you would be with them and you'd give them grace. And God, as we get into your word, would you help us as well to engage and to go deeper into this conversation of what it means to have these labels? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for doing that. You know, talking about labels, we started last week in the conversation on this idea of labels and examining for you and me the, uh, the fact that we all have labels and that those labels shape the lives that we live, that the labels that you and I hold onto inside and the way that we name ourselves wind up having an effect on our life. And if you are part of a small group, you got to begin to the journey and identifying some of those labels, examining what those mean. And as we're working through this spiritual growth campaign. I hope that you guys are able to unpack more and more of those. For, for the thing we're talking about today with labels um, that's important is really kind of that label that deals with purpose. Now, I as a kid ha was always flirting with labels of purpose. If you think about it, um, we all have been asked this question as a kid. I was at, uh, the first time I remember really being asked this question, I was at Lake Arrowhead. My family would go there for a, for a vacation with another family and we'd all stand around and enjoy, you know, do all the different things you can do up at Lake Arrowhead. And we wound up in a, a guy, another guy's cabin um, up at the time. And we were, me and my sisters and the, the young daughter of our friends were all at this cabin hanging out. And this guy, it was kind of asking some questions. He goes, so I just want to know, what do you want to do for a living? You know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I don't know, have you ever been asked that question as a kid and you just didn't know how to answer? You're just like, oh, I don't know. I'll ask my kids, what do you want to do when you grow up, guys? And my daughter's like bent on being an oceanographer. It's awesome. It's not like some little kid thing. She's like, like no, I am going to work with animals at SeaWorld. That is her aim of life, and she's going to do everything she can to get there, and I love it because we, we want to encourage her in her dream. For me, I was the kid who always flirted with purpose. Like, I always flirted with that answer. First, I was like, uh, that, that day, I was five, I answered, I said, I want to be a paleontologist. She's like, what? 
how old are you? I'm like five. He's like, you don't even know what a paleontologist is. Yes, I do. They dig up dinosaur fossils. He's like, what? And so I just started naming all the different dinosaurs I knew because I was obsessed with dinosaurs at the age of five and did a science fair project on them and all this stuff. But little did I realize that that wasn't going to be my purpose in living because Indiana Jones came out and showed me the better way that at seven, I was going to be an archaeologist. <laughs> Right? And then that lasted as long as I, then I met uh, Thomas Edison and suddenly it was like, no, I'm going to be an inventor. And so I had like literally papers and all this. You can tell, no, you say, Greg, you were none of those things. You were a nerd. Yes, I know. I had all this drawing papers and stuff and I tried to make, invent things. And later that would lead to actually what in high school and in college I aimed myself at ultimately was I was going to be an engineer. And so, because I could do all kinds of stuff with an engineering degree and ultimately wound up being a pastor. So God, God knew better than I did. And maybe you ran into through those, maybe you ran through those, those passages of life where you, you kind of were going to be one thing and you wound up being something you never expected you would be. And yet the question still remains, what are you going to be when you grow up? And it's not really, I'm being a little facetious because I want to flip the question a little bit. I want to ask a different thing. You see, you and I can answer what did we become when we grew up, but why do you do what you do now that you're grown up? That's a different question. It's not the same question. You can answer what do I do, but why do you do what you do now that you've grown up? Oh, I just do it because I have to, because I have to make money. Why do you do what you do now that you're grown up? Why do you do what you do when you were young? Why do you do what you do when you're in high school? It's interesting because Anquan Bolden just announced recently he's a he's a a major NFL star who's going to wind up in the Hall of Fame, and he he announced recently his retirement. People are like, "Why in the world would you be retiring? You've got so much more in you. You're young. You still got this." He's like, "Look, my life is more than football. His purpose was greater than football." His purpose for living was going to be more than just this game in in the NFL. And for you and for me, can you say that about your career? Can you say that about your, your situation of life that you're in? Can you stand back and look at what you do for a living or your family or wherever you're at and actually sincerely say, my life is greater than this career or this fame or these things? And that's really the struggle that we have because we all have it. In the ancient world, they had it. A young man named Saul of Tarsus had this problem. We meet Saul of Tarsus. If you you know your Bible, you you know he's in the book of Acts. If you don't know your Bible, you haven't been there yet. And you you meet this guy named Saul of Tarsus. First time he shows up, it's in this very horrific scene in which a man named Stephen has been arrested. He's a Christian evangelist. And they've placed him in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. And they've stood and they've accused him of certain things. And Stephen just pronounces the gospel and lays it straight at their feet as their fault. And he says, Jesus' death is your fault. You guys got to deal with it. You're rejecting God. You're rebelling. And so suddenly the council gets up to stone Stephen and they stone him. In the meantime, we meet Saul for the first time and he's there approving of the execution, holding everybody's garments. He's, the, he, he's kind of there as the official accuser who's, who's there to hold everything up. Now, Saul suddenly saves his purpose with, for life and he launches him to the first persecution of the church. He views it as necessary in order to condemn this heresy that is going to destroy the Jewish faith. And so Saul attacks at vehemence. He's known as the persecutor. He has all the might and power of the Sanhedrin behind him. And he goes from town to town finding Christians and dragging them into the, into the court system for them to be 
taken care of in the same way as Stephen. He had a purpose and a passion. If you'd asked Saul of Tarsus, what are you going to be? He says, I'm going to be the greatest in Israel. He knew where he was going. He was driven to be the Pharisee of Pharisees, the firstborn, the highest in the Sanhedrin. He wanted to be one of the top men that Israel had ever had. The problem is that Saul's not seeing something that we don't see. He's not seeing that the very role and the drive that he has doesn't suffice as a purpose for life. You see, the labels that we, sh- that we wear shape the purpose we will live. The label that you want to take on yourself, the name that you attach to yourself, then th- there are various per- things that we will pick up and they will shape the purpose that you're living for. Some of you have picked up the label and you're a mom or you're a dad or you're a husband or you're a wife and that label is shaping the reason you're living. Some of you are a boss. Some of you have a career path and it's shaping the reason you get up in the morning and the reason you live, the purpose that you have. And yet I want to be, give you a warning this morning. We're going to look at purposes. We're going to look at labels and how they affect our purpose. And what I want to do is kind of pull it out so that you guys can see whether or not what you're driving at as your purpose is really good enough. And so we start with a warning. I want to make us aware. We need to beware of making temporary labels an ultimate purpose. Temporary labels an ultimate purpose. There's a lot of different kinds of temporary labels that we hold on to. And there's a lot of them that wind up being so significant to us that they drive our lives. In fact, I'll just kind of lay out three different kinds of labels that I was thinking of this week to kind of give you a hint at where I was going. So it starts, some labels are roles that become a purpose. Some of these are, are roles. They're things that you and I find ourselves doing. Like I said, a boss, all these different things. And we wind up longing and holding on to these. The best example biblically that I know is a different man named Saul. Now we met Saul of Tarsus. I want to take you back in history, way back before the time of the church into Israel's past. They've just had a whole bunch of judges that have ruled them, and they've kind of gone through this cycle of following God, the not following God, and falling into judgment. A judge gets them out, and around and around and around they went. And so finally, the, the king, all the people, all the elders of the people rise up to this final judge named Samuel, and they say, we want a king. And, and Samuel, grieved in the moment that he's being rejected, is, you know, pat on the back by God. It's okay, Samuel, they're really rejecting me, but we'll find him a king. And one day in the morning, this young man named Saul, he he wakes up and his dad says, hey, son, the donkeys are missing. How you lose your donkeys, I don't know, but his donkeys have just wandered off. And so Saul is told by his dad, go find the donkeys. Grabs a friend, they go marching around. They can't find the donkeys anywhere. They're roaming off in some field. And so they might wind up in this town where Samuel is. And Samuel's been told by God, when you see this a guy, this um, person coming through the gate, that's, I'm gonna tell you, at this time of day, that's gonna be the king. So he walks up, and here comes Saul walking towards him. He says, you, you're gonna be the king grabs him, drags him into this meeting, has a feast set before him, anoints his head with oil. And, and suddenly Saul's like, wow, what's going on? He gives him three signs. All three signs come to truth for when Saul's on his way home. And suddenly the whole, the whole place erupts with the realization that Saul's going to be king. Because they bring him forth before everybody, they anoint him as king, and now Saul leads a battle out and wins miraculously and powerfully over one of their enemies. 
Uniting and pulling everybody together, Saul is now beginning his reign as the king of Israel. And yet the problem is God tells him, hey, I need you to do something. And he's waiting for Samuel to show up. And so instead of letting Samuel do the sacrifice, Saul does the sacrifice. And he takes a step away from God. Still king, but you know, a little bit further from God. Next thing you know, God tells him, go destroy this group of people that you've been fighting against. Just finish this war against them and deal with it. Let your people be free. So, but you need to destroy everything, even their goats, their sheep, all of it. And so they set out against the Amorites and Saul goes out, destroys the Amorites, but brings back all the best sheep and all the best goats and all the best stuff and keeps the king alive. Brings them back and Samuel shows up on the scene. And Samuel's like, what is going on here? God's told him, look, he's, he's dis- Saul's disobeyed me. And so Samuel walks up to Saul and says, Saul, come here. Let me talk to you for a second, buddy. They step aside and Saul's like, hey, check it out. We did what the Lord said. We obeyed the command of God. And he says, if you obeyed the command of God, what's all this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? But y- you may be tall, but you're not that smart. I'm not deaf. I can see you disobeyed God. Oh, well, you know, the people, they wanted to give sacrifices to God. And, you know, it's all cool. They made me do it. That's basically Saul's response. And this is the response that suddenly comes from Samuel to Saul. He says, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination. Presumption is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul, who never looked to be king, became king, and now he's been told you've been rejected. In fact, he'll say he's going to go find somebody else, a man after his own heart. As we heard at our small groups, that was David. But here Saul has now received the clear notification, you're done. It's not going to pass on. It's not going to your son. And yet, everything Saul does from this point on is to try to keep his kingdom and keep being the king. You see, what's happened is he's taken his role as king and made it his purpose for life. It wasn't to obey God. It wasn't just to lead Israel. It wasn't to do what God, what God had called him to do. It was to do what Saul knew, which was to be the king. So it's no wonder that later when David shows up and he has defeated Goliath and he's winning all these battles, that suddenly these women are singing this anthem about David and they say, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousand. I used to sing this when we did Samuel. I said, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's like annoying. But anyway, and Saul was angry and he's saying, hey, they've ascribed to David tens of thousands. To me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can have we have with the kingdom? Anybody get the idea that Saul's a little thick in the head? I mean, here, Sam is just told him, you're going to lose your kingdom. In fact, he's told him that twice. And he's just like, no, David's going to take my kingdom. Of course he is. God told you he is. But he's so bent on being king as his life purpose, he stopped listening to God. And so God stopped speaking to him. And because Saul was bent after his purpose being a label, being a role, God shut things down. In fact, gave him a, a, gave him a spirit that tormented him, and David rose up, and Saul tries to kill David, but he can't. He tries to install his son Jonathan, but Jonathan's like, no, my, David's going to be the next king. 
And so Saul, in this murderous rampage, over and over and over again, tries to stop David and finds himself in the middle of a war and doesn't hear from God, can't get any, anything from God. And so in a desperate attempt to figure out what to do, he runs off to a witch in a place called Endor, not on a forest moon of a far planet. This, this, is, this is the original Endor. And this is a small, uh, small town in which he uh, finds this witch who probably had a pit in the ground. You can go back to our Samuel series and listen to this story. But Saul goes in and basically asks her to bring up the ghost of Samuel. And Samuel's ghost comes up, freaks the witch out because this doesn't normally happen. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress. The Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, why do you ask me since the Lord's turned from you and because I'm become your enemy? The Lord's done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Hey, Mr. Thickhead. And, and I didn't put it in here, but the next sentence says, and today you and your son, Jonathan, are going to die. Your life is over. Done. Saul is the perfect example of how you and I can get so myopically focused on what we do, we forget that there's a greater purpose. That God hasn't labeled you by your job. He may have offered you a job. You may have a position. You have a role today. But the role makes a lousy ultimate purpose. The role can come and the role can go. But that doesn't take away who you are and what it means to live. If it does, that's not a good purpose. I mean, how many of you and I have had to reinvent ourselves because, hey, a label's come and it's leaving. Some of you are striving still to hold on to a label you once had. You were the, you were the pretty one when you were younger and beautiful, or you were the strong one, or you were the smart one. And now as life is going on, you ain't so pretty, you ain't so strong, you ain't so smart anymore. But man, I'll do everything I can. Some of us are throwing thousands of dollars of plastic surgery in our culture to stay that way. Tons and tons of money in order to try to keep up with the game. I'm going to go get more education, take more things. We are constantly running to hold on to things that, you know what, are things that just disappear with time. But that's where we exist as a people. We get, we get stuck because the small things become the ultimate things. The labels that other people put on us or the labels that we want wind up becoming our purposes. And so it moves on. Here's another set of labels. Uh, another set of labels are past pains that become purposes. These don't work either. They're powerful and they're the ones that we need to be the most careful about. But the past pains are the ones where suddenly some horrible event occurs in your past. In order to overcome that past pain, you turn it into your cause and your desire for life. I think of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, an awesome organization. I'm not knocking this. I'm just saying that what happens one day when they finally actually achieve their goal? What will they do? Say you finally get to the place where you've, you've able to help and, and you've been able to outlaw something. You've got Megan's Law in place and it's all working and now you're done. you you, you got your law in place. I'm going to keep advocating. I'm going to keep fighting. Good. That's good. We want to keep advocating against evil and things like that. That's not a bad thing. It's just not an ultimate thing. You know, some people have, because of their past pain, they bent themselves around vengeance. 
And vengeance has driven their life and they've been running after it. And yet I think of that famous, that famous um, avenger that we all love, Emigo Montoya, right? Emigo Montoya is sitting there in the one scene and he's fighting Wesley and, and he's doing the whole thing and, he, and the, he's talking to him. He's like, this man with six fingers, he killed my father and one day I'm going to look him in the eye and I'm going to say, hello, my name is Emigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And he, at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, yes, he gets to kill the guy. And in the end, he's sitting there and he's like staring at Wesley at the end of the movie. He's going like, I've been in the revenge business so long, I don't, I don't know what to do with my life. Hello? How many of us are taking a small thing and making it our ultimate purpose? You get it. And what's your life about now? There's so little purpose. We run to the wrong things. We, we, we go after them. Or if we, don't, if, if we don't end up succeeding, what happens if you don't make your aim from your past pain? Are you a life failure then? Because that's what it would mean. And so it's so difficult when we take these temporary little labels of past pains, these labels of roles, and we turn them into the ultimate purposes. Now, again, I'm not saying don't do these good things. Don't fight against these, bad, these evils that have occurred. Don't not use your past pain for a, a worthy cause, but it doesn't become the purpose to live. It can't be. It'll consume you. It's too small. It's not large enough to give you enough for a robust life to live. You'll bend your life around the problem. You'll bend your life around that one thing some of us are just doing a past pain where we're trying to not be what everybody said we were. I mean, I'll tell you what, that, that's in my head. Constantly fighting off that label of insignificant or whatever was picked up as a child. And when you start looking at that label, you realize, man, I've been running to prove all these people wrong for so long. It's almost become my life purpose. And we need to be careful. How have the labels of our lives affected the purpose that we live? I mean, why do you do what you do now that you're all grown up? One final set of labels, which is interesting, is the desired labels. These are those, one, those little labels that we long to have. We want to be these things. I want to be an engineer. I want to be famous. I, I want to be this. I want to be that. And we, we run and we strive and we press and we push like Paul, like Saul the, of, of Tarsus who becomes Paul. He, he wants to be the greatest in Israel and he's doing everything he can. Yes, even persecuting the church in order to do so. Or I think of Madonna. In an interview given that Tim Keller references in one of his books, he's talking about the fact that she, she was um, in Vogue magazine talking about her career. Listen to her words. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. That's insightful. Because here's a woman who strove and strove to achieve significance. She achieved it only to feel like she had to hold it, and it wasn't worth it. Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, explains it like driving around in a cul-de-sac. Around and around you go. If I could just get more stuff, 
Once you get the house, it's great. Once you've achieved that, that status, it's great. Once you've gotten that thing you want, it's great. Only it doesn't satisfy, so you drive back around to get another one. I want more status. I want more stuff. I want more, I want more things. That, that didn't satisfy. Maybe it'll add, if I add more, it'll be even better. But guys, if it's not good in a little bit, it's not going to satisfy the more that you have. It's just not satisfying. It's not a purpose for living. It's not capable. Don't let the little labels become the large ultimate purposes of your life. It's going to mess you up and burn you out. It's, in, it, it's just not good. And we do this, let's be honest, we do this because we've lost sight of how to find purpose. You see, without God, we have no clear purpose. You got to make it up. Think about it. If there's no God out there, then all there is is the material world that's gone boom and kind of organized itself and kind of done things they tell us until you and I are standing here empowered and moved by all the physical laws of the universe. Our, our, our atoms are doing what they're going to do. We're survival of the fittest. And yeah, we got brains and maybe we can overcome that or maybe we just fall into the very pattern we should. But ultimately, one day, this universe is either going to, as far as science seems to indicate now, it's just going to keep going and expanding until everything turns into a nice, even bunch of energy. And we all just go, then no one will be left to remember you. No annals of history will remain. No dictator will have his power immortalized. Nothing but a little bit of energy spread out really thin will exist. No memories, no knowledge, no meaning. You are meaningless. That's what this world tells us. In fact, they're not the first ones to say it. Solomon, the son of David, was. He said, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And that term under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes indicates in a life without God, in a life where it's just us running around on earth. He says, hey, in a life with us just running around on earth, I've seen everything and behold, it's all vanity and a striving after the wind. You ever tried to catch the wind? Hold on to it? Pointless, meaningless, one translation says. It's all Meaningless. And so it's no wonder when there is no God and we have a world out there that doesn't think God's powerful enough, when, when we don't understand where we come from, all we got is meaning. You just got to make up meaning then, right? Let's just make some meaning up. It'll give us a, a sense of imagination and we'll be great. We'll feel better about ourselves. And so some people, they're running around going, YOLO, baby! You only live once! That's great. What do you mean by live? Because I guarantee you, if it's all about just doing fun stuff all the time, that gets really old after a while. And eventually you sit there at the midway of your life and you go, I've had all this fun, but what have I done that's worth anything? And experiments, conversations with people, they said, if I could put you in a box, it would give you ultimate meaning. And you came out and you had done great things for the world. Or I put, gave you a box where you could live and have the most pleasurable experience forever and ever, or just a massive amount of experience that was just super pleasurable, the greatest pleasure, but at the end of both of them, you died. Which box would you get into? Everybody chooses the meaningful box because pleasure is a worthless reason to live. And yet that's what we offer. Buy more, have more fun, see another film, watch another film from the 80s that's already been watched. You know, it's, it's over and over and over again. 
Others yell, hey, we'll just leave it better than we found it. That's great. I, that's actually more noble. I appreciate that one. Let's leave this world better than we found it. But what does better mean? And who says your better is right? Hitler thought he was going to leave a better world. Mao thought he was leaving a better world. Stalin thought he was leaving a better world. For the people who wanted his better world. Better is only defined by somebody who's above us and knows what better is. is. Better's better when we're not making it up. But ultimately, we all want our own better world, what we think is better. And it's not meaningful. It's meaningless. Without God, all labels and all purposes we run for are just temporary. They're going to exhaust themselves as the energy of the universe just pans itself out. And so we need something greater because if it's about being a parent, if it's about being a spouse, what are you going to do when that spouse dies or those kids leave? Many of you have had that sensation where suddenly your children are gone out of the home or your spouse is dead and you're going, I don't know what to do with my life anymore. They were my life, I've heard people say. I hope not. Because even humans are not a great purpose to live for. Because we betray each other and we die and we leave. I've heard men in retirement go through massive crises because they don't know what to do now. I'm not a functional member of society anymore. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Because they've never just put that purpose in cement at their feet. And so now when they enter into a world where their purpose was their job, was a role, they don't know what to do. See, it's, without God, it's just temporary. And the worst is, some of you just never got there. You got your midlife crisis, tried to reinvent yourself, and you kept striving. You're just a failure in life. No, you're not. Here's the problem. We're just putting the wrong things in the slot. We, when people ask us, why do you do what you do now that you're grown up? They're not asking us, what do you want to do when you grow up? They're asking us a purpose question. What's your reason for existing? And that starts not from inside. As Rick Warren is very correct in his first sentence on the purpose-driven life. It's not about us. You can't start here. You can't eat, pray, and love your way to your meaning. No, it comes from he who made you. The maker defines the meaning. The maker gives the purpose. And so we go back to the beginning because we find our ultimate purpose by knowing God's labels of purpose. We know who he's made us to be. And so let's dive into this just just for a little bit for the next few minutes and examine this. It starts where God labeled us as his representatives. We are here to represent God. You've been made to represent God. In fact, if you look at the Bible, God made everything to, to, to reveal himself. I really believe that's what we mean by the word glorify is God's showing himself off. He's making much of himself. So you can dig into plant life. You can dig into the sciences. You can be like, oh my gosh, look how complicated the DNA is. Look how amazing these molecular factories are. And you'll be blown away by the stars and the world around you. And you should be. Don't let science freak you out. Let it be a primer to your worship on Sunday morning. Because it ought to just erupt amazement in your soul. 
It's revealing God. But you and I are made specifically in that giant circle. I want you to imagine a giant circle on the stage. Just it was huge. And that's what God, that's the meaning God gave everything to reveal him. And in the midst of that is a smaller circle. And that's all of humanity. We were all made for a purpose. And he says, here's what it is to represent me. In Genesis 1.27, at the height of the creation, he says, God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In this image. What does that mean? Um, Another way of saying this is um, this word image is is icon. It it represents, it was like a little idol that would represent the gods of the age. And so you'd say, that is imaging my God. And God says, no, I made you to image me. In the East, they would have understood the idea of being a child of somebody matched the same thing. And so when they would talk about you being a child, you represented your parent. We all know what that's like. Anybody remember what it's like bringing your kid to the grocery store when they're little? All right, you're, you're pushing your kid around the car. They get to that point where they're just exhausted and they're done. And they start literally going, Aah! freaking out on you because they couldn't have the cookies or whatever that was, or the, usually it's some kind of chewy, gummy, sugary thing. And you're like, no, we're not buying that. And they start freaking out. The first experience you have as you start, your body temperature starts to heat up and you feel the, everything going, is that people think I'm a bad parent. You ever had that feeling? They're all looking at me right now. I got to do something. And then what happens is your kid triggers you bad enough that you become a bad parent and everybody sees it. And you're like, stop, I'm going to spank you and you're going to hurt so, And the reason we feel this way is because we believe our children represent us. That the way my kid acts says something about the way I've, treat, I've raised them and my DNA. So I blame my wife. No, I don't. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> But that's the, that's the struggle we have. And as our kids get older, we're proud when they do something because they represent us. And we're shamed when they mess up because they represent us. Your children are a representation of you. That's why when God says, you're my sons and daughters, he's saying, I want you to represent me. You're my image. You're here to represent me. Where you go, they're meeting me. When you show up, I want you to act like me, be like me, treat people like I treat people, treat this world like I treat people. Your purpose in life is to reveal and to show off God. Why do I go to work? Why do I do what I do now that I'm grown up? Because I'm here to treat people like God treats people, to treat this world like God treats this world, and to show God off in all the things that I do. See, that's an odd thing, except when you realize you're designed to be like what you worship. Everybody worships something. And what you worship shapes who you are. And so as we worship God, he is the ultimate being, and you become more like him, more intelligent like him, more kind like him, more powerful like him. All of the attributes of God that that you and I represent start flowing through us in a kind and useful, powerful manner. Now, if I worship man, I, 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 I'm not going to be as good. And if I worship animals, as many people have come to lately, you start acting like animals. We start running after our passions. We start running after our things. And this is what goes on. See, our purpose comes then not from knowing ourselves. It comes from knowing God. And that's why you and I need to be in the word of God. You want to know who you are, find out who God made you in. And find out the God that made you in his image. 
That's why you need to know theology. Theology is not this thing to just be like, oh yeah, old people talking about dumb stuff. No, theology is the distillation of all the crazy data that God has given us inside of this book, put into a way that you can eat and look at so that you know who God is as he's explained himself and how and what he has made and who you are. That's what theology teaches you. Not some doctrines that are esoteric back there that we don't have to care. No, I'm sorry. If you ignore theology, you're going to have a rough time coming to the understanding of what God has made you to be and to do in this world that he's made. Because we need to know him first. And then you get to know who you are. Because you're made in his image. And so the problem, though, is that sin has messed this up. Sin broke this purpose. You see, we were made to represent God, but we ran after representing ourselves. We were made to press after God, but we wound up showing me off or showing off Dagon or showing off, you know, Hyundai or whatever. What we're into becomes what we show off. And so I want us to realize that God has called us back. He's redeemed us. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, you see this. He says, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but it's right here. I'll read it to you. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power or the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. And so we were, by, we were like children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What he says is, hey, there are three things we chase. We chase the demonic world. You see that? Go study ancient history. You'll see people chase the demonic world. We've chased our own, world, our own ideas about the world, um, just kind of how humans have made it up. I think that's been the, the latest phase of humanity. And we're now moving into the third phase. We chase our flesh. We chase our desires. We just go after whatever we want. And these three things are like a race course, it says, and we run around and around and around on them constantly. Race courses are no fun to run. They're circles. And so he says, this is what we've been stuck in, in this mentality about God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. It gives us the grace of Jesus on the cross to break us out of that mold, to break us out of that track, out of that race of just the labels giving us definition of life. He says, no, I give you a new one. In fact, I'll fast forward down to verse 10 after he tells us that this isn't about what you earn it. You don't earn this thing, no. He says, You have been given this, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's rebirthed your purpose. See, it broke when we ran after our own thing. We tried to define purpose outside the giant circle way over here. He says, no, I'm bringing you back in through Christ in a relationship with me so you can see exactly how I've made you and who you are so you can have a relationship with me and know me. And then when you engage that, you start to do great things in this world. And so what happens is that God puts you and I in this world to reveal him through it. You can cross out us and just write it. I mean, not us, but through what we do with the world. Why do you go to work? Why do you do the things you do? Because God's called you to do it. It's called vocation. You want to honor God? You don't have to be a pastor. Go to work to reveal God. Serve the people around you with love. Do your greatest work and produce the greatest goods. And if it's a place that doesn't produce goods but rips people off, leave it and go do what you learned there better with more honesty and truth. 
But what you do, you do it because you're here to be God's kid, God's child. What you do is because you're his child to show off who God is and all that you do. And therefore, we do lots with this world. We discover his creation in science. We produce expressions of that in art. We create all kinds of goods to care for each other and lift each other up. We do services in order to help people out. This is the whole robust reality of business, commerce, family, and life. And it's found in one simple verse at the very beginning. He makes you in the image of God and he says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, have families. Woohoo! I like that verse. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Fill the earth and subdue it. That's not beat it into submission. That's treat it as God's called you to. Shape this world. Do you notice animals, when they come into our care, live longer? As much as everybody wants to say, free the animals, let them out of the cages and all that stuff. That's great. I get it. We don't want them, like, hurt inside the, inside the zoos and stuff, but they live longer because we help them with the diseases. We care about the animals. We conserve and we, we care about them. We don't kill them off just for the fun of it. Fill the earth, have dominion over the fish and over the sea. Protect, rule, care about this. Guys, we're supposed to be making much of this world as God planned. We're stewards of the earth, representing him on the earth, loving each other and caring about the world that he's made in order that God would be known through it. There's a lot to do in that. Whether it's telling great stories, whether it's drawing great drawings, whether it's discovering new science, whether it's helping people who are sick, whether it's lifting up and educating the young that they too may explore and enjoy this world. All of this is part of being made in the image of God. Why do you do what you do now that you're all grown up? I hope you see you do what you do because God's made you to represent the wonder of the infinity of who he is. And if that sounds boring to you, then it's time for you to get to know the God who made you. Because it's incredible, and it's beautiful, and it's powerful, and it's good and right. And just as Paul realized all of his evil, all of the stuff that he had been doing, was to make himself number one, he, Jesus showed up and revealed himself to him, and he realized, oh my gosh, I've been doing this in the wrong way, and he considered all that past stuff garbage, and let God relabel him and redeem him, so that his purpose became aimed at showing off who Christ is. And now he's one of the most meaningful men in the world. Guys, Christ can redeem our purposes and flip our labels. And that's what I want to invite us to do in this next week. So let's go ahead and pray and ask God just to aid us in this conversation. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to get into your word and that you can shape us. I pray that you would just continue to help relabel us where our labels are, are broken. And continue to guide us away from just the, the wrong miniaturized labels that we put in because they're roles or pains. Instead, let us see that those roles and those pains, these other things fit inside that ultimate purpose that you've given to us. And then give us your strength that we may walk in it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.